The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. rapidly moving world. The pace of life today is such that a tiny error can change a king to a beggar, a killer to a lover, or a beggar to a hero. My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and vaporetto, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's discussion covers the 1992 British comedy Blame It on the Bellboy, written and directed by Mark Herman and starring Dudley Moore, Richard Griffiths, Penelope Wilton, Alison Steadman, Patsy Kensett, and Brian Brown. My guest is writer and podcaster Paul Morris, and you join us in a disused storefront on the Ponte de Rialto. Hello, Paul. Hello, Jeremy. How are you? I'm very well on this blustery Saturday afternoon. Just giving people a glimpse behind the curtain there. Well, yes, we're, we are recording on a, a Saturday afternoon in, in autumn, and it's, it's blustery and, and cold there. It's blustery and cold here at the other end of the line. And... With such uh, autumnal weather outside, it makes me think back to the holiday I took last year to the beautiful Mediterranean city of Venice. Uh, did you really? The... Yes, I really did. Oh, good. And uh, exploring the, the fantastic uh, neo-medieval world of that beautiful, enchanting city. <laughs> Almost preserved in amber for hundreds of years, still still untouched and unchanged by the ravages of time. And with that in mind, it raises the eternal question, what's your favourite Dudley Moore film? <laughs> Goodness me. Um, I, <laughs> I think it's probably uh, Blame It On The Bellboy. I think it's the one that, uh, I don't know if you've heard of it, I think it's the one that showcases his talents to their fullest degree. Um, well, I mean, you could pick um, Bedazzled, the Bed Sitting Pro- Room, Foul Play, uh, The Hound of the Baskervilles, yep. Ten, Arthur, Arthur okay. Two on the Rocks, or even a previous cinema limbo entrant, Santa Claus the Movie. Um, but uh, Blame It on the Bellboy is a, a choice that I would agree with. Yes, I think that's a very fine film. Um, it's something that's been on the back burner for cinema limbo for quite a long time, as a film that I recall being panned and yet I couldn't uh, detect anything particularly off about it from my memory. So I rewatched it for the podcast and to my surprise and delight, I really enjoyed it. Well done. Yes, uh, well, I mean, if, uh, if we're going straight in with opinions, I enjoyed it more than I remembered having done so at the time. I saw this when it came out. Comedy is my first love, as you probably won't have gathered. And... Um, I was intrigued and keen to support this this novelty of British comedy by a first-time, well, almost first-time writer-director. It was his first it's, feature film, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, seemed, uh, seemed to stand out, rather, back in 1992. It was, it's coming definitely at the very tail end of the 
of that incarnation of the British film industry, the one that had been ravaged by um, the 1980s that had seen so much talent going overseas, such a, a brain drain, and so little funding for British cinema, with studios being taken up by um, runaway American productions. And when Mark Herman, who was uh, originally uh, an animator before moving into live-action filmmaking, he had won the Student Academy Award for Best Student Film, and he also worked, rather oddly, as lyricist for The Christians, uh, <laughs> who, which were a very successful band in the UK in the late 80s, had a number one album, uh, their second album, their debut got to number two, and had a couple of top ten singles. Uh, not a Christian band. It's worth pointing out. The name is confusing. They're called the because Christ they're called the Christians because they were from a family called Christian. Apart from the lead singer, whose middle name was Christian. And ironically, he's a Satanist. I it's don't. One think, of those, I don't one believe of those... that's true. Oh, okay. Um, yes, I, I I did notice that uh, they'd written the lyrics for the um, the song that plays over the closing credits, and I hadn't realised it. I'd thought that he'd just foisted himself upon them and said, I've, I've written a song, would you like to do this for my film? And um, they would have begrudgingly said yes. But no, as you say, it seems... They, they that's were rather all, unusual. They were all, in, no, they were rather unusual for a... Came with a but, yeah. Unusual in that era. Uh, past the glory days of, of songwriters who would sell their wares to any recording artist who fancied having a go at them. Hmm. For for the songs to be written by someone who's not a member of the band, so interesting, man of many parts. But he'd, he'd written previous songs with them as well, rather than um, it, this being a, a a particular case. So it's um, very much a, a man of many trades. Um, yes. Uh, Mark Herman had tried to get funding for the film in the UK, but there was simply no one interested in in funding the picture. This, I can believe that. This this $3 million comedy with a star cast of British character actors and he could not get funding for it. Um, so he ultimately had to go to Disney and the film was produced through its Hollywood Pictures imprint. Oh, is that who they are? I was wondering. Hollywood Pictures, right. Yes, it's it, it was, I think, intended as an alternative to Touchstone. This Touchstone was the label that they set up to fund or to produce films that didn't fall in the traditional Disney banner. Yeah. And their fir the first one they released was Splash. And that was soon followed by their first ever R-rated film, which was Down and Out in Beverly Hills. And they had, you know, Touchstone ran for years and was, was highly successful. But they also started the second imprint, Hollywood Pictures, for, um, I think, slightly more niche productions that would right. fall outside the more commercial Touchstone banner. Okay. Now, I mean, in terms of being unable to raise funding is that just a sign of <laughs> the apathy and indifference of the British film establishment to this kind of this kind of product, or is it that it would genuinely they would have been genuinely worried it wouldn't make back its three million its paltry three million investment? I think it was a mixture of both. I mean, the, at the time, the the industry was in such a terrible state; there was very little money going around. I mean, um, Handmade would have been the obvious place to go. But that had folded a couple of years earlier. Yeah. Um, there was there was really no one left, um, and it would take you know a couple more years and Channel Four coming along to move into more commercial filming, 
like, for example, Brassed Off, which, mm. was, which was, of course, Herman's next film. Yes. Um, yeah, so when, it's, when the industry turned itself around. So this, this takes place in a very, a very specific moment, a sort of black hole for the British perfect, film industry. A perfect moment. Right. Which is a perfect moment for you to... Yeah, it doesn't look like a Disney film, does it? But on the other hand, it doesn't strain to have... I mean, Venice doesn't always look quite as sunny as you might hope it would, but that's just that's just the vagaries of film production in general. But it, it doesn't have the cheapness around the edges that it might have expected for a, a low-budget British comedy of this No, and it, time, it, so. it has extensive location filming in Venice, which is fantastically difficult at the best of times, but just mm. even just because of the logistics of Venice, um, that... You know, even cycling isn't allowed there because the, the alleyways and, and streets are so narrow. Everything has to be done on foot or by boat. It's, it's ridiculous. Um, and also filming during the tourist season, it's fantastically crowded. Um, the weather can be brutal all year round. It's, it's extraordinary. So the fact that it, they're putting it all on screen, they're filming as much in Venice as they can. Yep. Only the interiors are uh, in studio. And even then, it, there's a nice matching of um, of tone, so it doesn't feel yeah. jarring. Yeah, I've seen it done much worse. I think it's 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 surprising that you couldn't get you know a British film company to stump up the cash, but a major Hollywood studio was prepared to throw three million dollars at a first time writer director who was completely unknown to make a movie. It shows uh, an, an extraordinary level of trust and faith even on even on a comparatively tight budget that they were prepared we, to fund the film do we know why they did was it the the star names he had <laughs> had attached dudley oscar, moore oscar nominee dudley moore yeah um highly regarded character actors like penelope wilton and richard griffiths um, um well look star, brian brown <laughs> star of fx the deadly art of illusion yes true um i'll be I'm not going to let you, not going to let you convince the world that uh, Hollywood executives were jumping up and down in glee at the thought of Richard Griffiths and Penelope Wilson being attached to their project. I, I think they they. I'm this, I'm pleased got, because they, they, I think they looked at it and thought it's got all these proper British actors in it, and with a with a promising young filmmaker was and and it'll be filmed in Venice for a relatively low amount of money. This could make us a lot of money. That um under the conditions Hollywood executives might have thought that this was a, a, a good bet because of um, sophisticated British humour <clears throat> and that kind of thing Was Patsy Kensett still a name at that point? I believe so, yes um, you know, She was fading in and out of the papers intermittently In a couple of years she would get together with Was it Liam Gallagher? Good grief, I suppose it's not that far off is it? <laughs> Strange to think this is much closer to the Britpop era than than we are now. Mm. It's almost like it's almost like we're getting old, isn't it, Jeremy? Oh, well, I am. Well, I, yeah, I won't include you in that. You, you You're speak still. For yourself. I am. I am looking at Jeremy, listeners by the um, by the medium of video conferencing, and he's looking as sprightly as the day I first met him. <laughs> Thank you. You don't look a day older either. <laughs> so yes, I. I don't wish to damn the film with faint praise, but I think the circumstances behind its very existence are probably as interesting as the film itself. It's not. Mm. 
Well, the uh, the film starts in an abandoned warehouse in Venice, where a man is being tortured for information about a contract killer being sent from London. Uh, that the uh, the head of the local mafia chapter um, has been uh, sicked onto, uh, Mr. Scarpa. Uh, played by, of course, Andreas Katsoulis. Yes, everyone's favourite... Um... Damn, I've forgotten the name of the alien race. It's a lizard bloke, isn't he, from Babylon 5? Yes, Jakar. Jakar. And also the one-armed man from the film version of The Fugitive, which came out the following year. Ah, right. Yes. Oh, you're taking me back to my salad days <laughs> at the University Film Club. Yes, no, what do you think this this opening scene tells us? <clears throat> about how uh, the writer-director is setting out his stall. It's not <laughs> funny. It's really quite quite alarming and visceral and violent. So what's he telling us? This this film is set in the real world. There is there is an undercurrent of danger that, that, that the, the threats of violence that the characters will experience are underpinned by characters who will actually go through with it. So all the time that Dudley Moore is being hounded from pillar to post by these mafia types, we know what the consequences will be of him pushing them too far. It's a theme to which I'm going to have to keep returning because the tone, I think, is the most interesting thing about this and where it sits in the pantheon of farcical British comedy. Because I don't know how... Well, I'm, I'm undecided how necessary it is for the... We need threat and danger and conflict in comedy, but I'm undecided if it's really important for it to be this hard-edged. The violence is a little too what? visceral for you. If the, yeah, I mean I won't I won't say all this at this point, but I mean, yeah, no, I'll just I'll just leave that hanging there. I'm not saying it is for me. It was definitely one of the things I came away from my first viewing of this film thirty years ago, thinking that the un, the tone was uneven. Now, <clears throat> obviously it's uneven, but that, when people say that, that's, that's a criticism. It was uneven in ways that it either, either weren't deliberate or in ways that were to the film's detriment. Now, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm still mulling it through, and I hope to come to a conclusion uh, through discussing it with you. Well, they, um, they leave the warehouse on their boat, which is called the Vendetta. <laughs> um, but also one of the... Uh, Mafia henchman. He has he has two. Rossi, who's played by Jim Carter, yeah, of Downton Abbey, superb and, Italian accent, yeah, and Alex <laughs> Alex Norton as Alfio. And Alfio has the habit of taking pictures, his Polaroid pictures of his victims, and that will come back later in the film as well. It will, yes. Um, so we cut to a an inbound plane where we have three men sitting in a row. Along the Isle, played by Richard Griffiths, Brian Brown and Dudley Moore, whilst um, on the ground at the Lido in Venice, uh, a property agent called Caroline Wright is trying to uh, get ready to sell a tumble-down villa. She is. And she's played by Patsy Kensett. She is, and... um... (laughs) Even if you weren't looking at the screen, you'd know whenever she's she's taking centre stage because the saxophones strike up, <laughs> and 
It makes me think that um, this film was imagined in the 80s because it had that the use of uh, keyboards and swelling and swelling saxophones, soaring saxophones <laughs> to create a touch of glamour just takes me straight back to to two years earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's told me it's the 90s and that they would need shuffling baggy drum beats. Well, that it ties in with the idea that this this film is the last of its of its kind. That it's the it yes, not, indeed the the, mm-hmm. the the last survivor of a, a previous generation of British filmmaking. Uh, builders in the house prop up the ceiling as a plane goes over, just to emphasise how close to disintegrating it is. And um, while on the plane, one of the uh, Dudley Moore's character. Uh, it's noted that he's buying property for his boss. Um, yes. While Richard Griffith's character is uh, taking part in a foreign dating service. There's a lot of setup at this point. Yeah. As of course, then as of course there needs to be. Um, I remember thinking the uh, <laughs> the first thing with Dudley Moore sort of tipped me off to what I remembered about the just how successful it is as a comedy. It's a scene which is supposed to be funny just because, oh no, there's a man who doesn't like flying and he's on a plane. Oh no, he looks a bit queasy. But there's no funny dialogue. There's nothing to really punch it up behind just the basic idea there. Now, later on, there are some good lines and lots of good plotting. But I think it's a problem that every so often the film... I would rather the dialogue was always at a certain level to keep you... To remind you, this is a comedy. It needs perhaps a bit more energetic performance from Dudley Moore, because he's a he's a great physical comic actor, and he's perhaps just being a bit um, a bit too hesitant in his performance at, at there. He needs to be a, a bit bigger. He needs to just, have a bit more business. Just at the beginning, or do, yeah. or throughout. Just at the beginning. I mean, I mean he, that's what he's been cast for, isn't it? To be a long-suffering everyman character. He's not so much the audience identification at all. It's more, good God, I'm glad, glad that's not me. He's the underdog. But he is, he is there to pull faces and squirm for 80 minutes. So, um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think it would have hurt the film if he'd turned it up to 11. But I wouldn't necessarily blame him for not doing so. Mm. It might, I can see why he might have been slightly unsure where to... Pitch it, and he does get lot. He does ring quite a lot of fun out of these situations, but I mean, some of them are a lot, a lot more awkward than just man uncomfortable about being on plane. One could suggest that it's the director's inexperience as well. He's dealing with all these big name actors, and um, he's perhaps letting them uh, get away with material that he could, he could put, he could push them further with. Mm. I think that's ent- entirely possible, and. Some of the actors, I wouldn't say get it, um, perhaps some of them are more suited to this kind of material, some of them understand what's being required of them, but I'll come on to that better than others. Um, so, as I say, Richard Griffith's character is in a dating service called Medidate. Yeah. Where you travel to a foreign country on the Mediterranean to meet your dating partner. <laughs> I guess it's supposed to be a pun. I've only just realised what where the pun is supposed to be, and that that's because it's not a particularly good one. Um, and he walks straight past the woman who he has in fact been sent for, yes, uh, who, which is Penelope Wilton, 
whom yes. that neither of them recognised the other. No, first of many, 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 many people crossing paths and not realising. Um, so they start to check in at the hotel, where there is some confusion already, because they all have very similar names. Yeah. Dudley Moore is playing Melvin Orton. 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 Richard Griffiths is playing Morris Horton. Horton. With an H. Yes. And the bellboy, played by Perfect Stranger's very own Balky, Bronson Pinchot, previous star of Beverly Hills Cop, um, struggles to differentiate the names. Yes, he was in Beverly Hills Cop. Don't pull that face. Was was he really? I didn't know. Didn't didn't recognise him. Oh, how interesting. He's in one scene as an amusing foreign man. Right. Okay. And there's a, there's a nice bit of comedy business at the end of the scene where he doesn't realise until the last minute that he's actually still holding the hotel room key, so he throws it through the gap in the closing lift doors. That's for, good. For, That's uh, very assured. For Melvin to catch. Yeah. Whilst uh, the I, third... I... Yes, sorry. The third man, Brian Brown, retrieves a violin case, and it's clearly set up that he is some sort of sinister type. He, he is, mm. in fact, the killer that Scarpa has been warned about. I remember, I, <clears throat> I think I started to relax a bit at the point that we get what some people probably find a very laboured joke about um, similar-sounding names. I, uh, I thought, oh, good, right, now, now I finally know what the tone is. Once you've been daring enough to set up a situation, an Orton-Horton-Lawton confusion, and to instruct your comedy bellboy to really wring every ounce of of obviousness out of it, then there's no going back. Now we know what sort of comedy this is. So it, all the other all the other tones that are flying around are, it's, are subservient to this main strain of, of farce. So from it, now on... It's, it's proper traditional theatrical Fadu Brian Ricks farce. It is. Linguist, people... Linguistic French doors. And, and women in their underwear. Yeah, well, yes. But, but I think it, it might be unusual, I don't know if it is that unusual, that it's unique to the screen because it's such a theatrical uh, genre, such a theatrical storytelling style, but this is an original one for the screen and you can't really imagine Blame It on the Bellboy being repurposed for the stage because it's such a, an expansive story that takes place all over the city. Absolutely. I watched... Yes. I watched a 1931 comedy called The Front Page last night. Um, oh, yes. And uh, that does not, you know, hide its theatrical origins at all. It doesn't even try to. It's literally... They've given the set a couple of levels, but it's clearly all set in one room. Uh, but that's a different story. But this is yeah. visually, I think, not necessarily much more sophisticated, but certainly more ambitious. Mm. I mean, even the, the the opening titles start with these fantastic helicopter shots of the Ven- Venetian landscape and the Venetian skyline, and it looks sensational. Um, and the final thing is that Brian Brown's character is named Mike Lawton with an yes. L. Hmm. I I appreciate all this. I occasionally have to write. Um, comedy dramas in this kind of vein and coming up with a, a, a conceptual gag like that I know how long you'd have to think about 
that to get the right names that are that's clear enough what you're doing with it it's not oh god i was going to say not overly contrived of course it's ludicrously contrived but they work the michael lawton the the use of the l at the end of michael to to hang into the auto it, it works you it it's not you don't have to squint to make it work which you know would be distracting people think hang on a minute so you, you've got the right three names and the right accent the italian accent to make it work and mm. and then he doesn't try to <clears throat> undersell it he doesn't try and gloss over it um like he's embarrassed by this joke the bell it's it's turned up it's dialed up as it needs to be if people <laughs> you need to tell people no 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 don't put your qualms away this is this sort of film um at dinner that evening uh morris is handed a message by the bellboy who says, I envelope you. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was, that's again a nice linguistic twist, as you as you suggest. And it's a message from Caroline Wright, the estate agent, intended for Melvin, Dudley Moore's character. But again, because the bellboy has confused everything, he gives it to Morris instead. Whilst the message intended for Mike has been sent to Melvin. So Melvin, who's there to buy property for his boss, has received the hitman instructions. Whereas the property for the boss instructions have been given to the man who's there to uh, cop off with someone. Indeed. And this is the, I would say, the perfect setup for a film length farce. You need three you could have a simple misunderstanding between two characters, but bringing in three and shifting all their motives and rationales round by, I was going to say 90 degrees, 60 degrees, no, 120, 120. degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I should stick to talking about comedy and not bring the maths in. Yeah, I, th- I think that's it's the right number of... Because um, this is a very technical thing. For all that writing funny dialogue... Is a completely different skill from constructing a farce of this kind. And constructing a farce that's well-engineered is just like constructing a murder mystery. Um, it's, it's interesting how these skills intersect. It's, um, yeah, getting it right, getting the plot mechanics right. It's a whole other skill from whether or not it's funny. And, and the more I think about this, the more impressed I am. Well, welcome to the club. <clears throat> um. So and yes, Mike goes to the front desk and he gets the metadata information intended for Morris. So his target that he thinks he has to kill is this nice English uh, middle class housewife type played by Penelope Wilton, who clearly couldn't say boo to a goose. No. And and Mike is a bit confused as to why she's been marked for death. She's not national treasure Penelope Wilson yet at this point, isn't she? But she's just lovely Penelope Wilson that everybody knows. Dame Penelope well. Wilton. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, she's the, the star of ever-decreasing circles. She is. And um, many great stage performances. Alan Akebourne and Samuel Beckett. And oh, indeed, yes, quite. She's, she's a remarkable performer. But it, it's, it's weird how she does very serious heavyweight drama on the stage and also like just a sitcom but but rather like like the great actors treats them both the same 
Because ever, yes. ever Decreasing Circles is a massively underrated series. It should be regarded as one of the great masterpieces of television comedy. I'm quite with you there. You you are? Yes, of course I am. Yeah. It's 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 such a brilliantly written series. I watched it again recently and it's extraordinary. That's why Richard Briers starts doing all the films with Kenneth Branagh because he saw Ever Decreasing Circles and realized how amazing his performance is in that. Is that really what happened? Well, so he, he... <laughs> <laughs> it was astonishing. It, he he started making Kenneth Branagh films just as he ceased to be able to carry a sitcom. Yeah, he had no confidence in his in his acting ability before then. Then one night, just as he thought his career was over, he decided to watch an episode of Ever Decreasing Circles and thought, "You know what, Richard? You're not half. You're not half bad." Well, he's the character of uh, Martin Bryce is very different from Tom Good. Tom, Tom Tom Good is kind of a shit, <laughs> but he but he's written as though he's nice. Whereas Interesting, Mar- isn't it? Whereas Martin Bryce is portrayed very honestly as being an absolute pain, but also a very honest, sincere man. And the way that that series delves into his psychology and his background is always sympathetic, as it looks at this really odd, peculiar, irritating person but treats him with great kindness and compassion and there's that nice dichotomy there that isn't there in The Good Life, although The Good Life is really funny and often really well written it never acknowledges that Tom Good is actually kind of a shit Yep Very well summed up Go and watch Ever Decreasing Circles everybody Oh yeah, it's really good It's a DVD box set, It's, it's fairly cheap It's really, really good and then um, go, and, go and search out Jason Hazley's essay on it. He's got a whole blog, a comedy writer Jason Hazley. Um, you'll enjoy that. Um, Dudley, Dudley. I, I've, in my notes, I've referred to the, all the characters by their actor names because I, it was just easier than writing their initials because that was just going to be confusing. <laughs> so I was, I was learning a lesson from the film of <laughs> minimise confusion by using people's proper names. Um, Melvin calls his boss... And I don't suppose you recognised the the voice of the actor playing his boss at the other end of the phone line. I didn't. I was idly trying to work it out, but no. It's it's Lindsay Anderson. <laughs> right. The the groundbreaking British New Wave director. Yes, that of Lindsay Anderson. Fil- of films such as This if. Sporting Life and If. Um. <laughs> who <laughs> has a, a an ongoing vocal only supporting role in this film. Right. Here are two unsuspected flair for light comedy. <laughs> well, the Mr. Marshall is just a, a, an unbelievably horrible person. And just insulting Melvin and pushing him around and being really horrible to him. Um, and he is by far, even, even more than the Mafia, he is the most despicable person in the film because he's evil for no reason at all. He's evil to lovely Dudley Moore. Yeah. Who we would all love to have working under us. Poor little un- downtrodden underdog Dudley Moore. Mm. Um, this was Anderson's last acting role. Um, it's certainly his last uh, feature film acting role. Um, I think he died only about two years later. Right. Um, and it's, this was also, in fact, Dudley Moore's last major film role. Was it really? Yes. Um... He uh, he did carry on working for a good few more years, 
his last film was The Mighty Kong, uh, an animated version of King Kong in 1998, which he plays the voice of both Carl Denham, the filmmaker who goes to uh, Kong Island, and also the voice of Kong himself. Now, I haven't seen the film, so I'm going to assume that Kong actually does talk. But, <laughs> but with the voice of Dudley Moore. Yep. Well, you can't say that's typecasting. Also, in the, in the following few years after Blame It on the Bellboy, he headlined two sitcoms, one of which was cancelled after five episodes, and the other was cancelled after three. Yeah. Now, see, I was debating when I watched the bell by earlier <clears throat> with Mrs. Morris um, whether Dudley was doing this just for the pure love of the scripts or because perhaps his star was slightly in, in decline. When was Arthur Two on the Rocks? That was 1989? 1988. Right. Mm. Yes, I mean, looking at his um, his filmography, after Arthur... Of six weeks, lovesick, romantic comedy, unfaithfully yours, best defence, a film that was reshot to add Eddie Murphy as a second lead. <laughs> right. Um, that half, like about a third of the film was thrown out and replaced with a completely new subplot with Eddie Murphy. Um, Mickey and Maud, Santa Claus the movie, like Father, like Son, one of the body swap films of the time. Then Arthur Two on the Rocks, and that film pretty much buries him as a major star. <laughs> he, uh, by that point, he hasn't really had a big hit movie in a, in a good few years, and he he made one more leading role between that and Blemit on the Bellboy, which is Crazy People, which is uh, about a uh, an advertising executive confined to a mental hospital when he starts telling the truth. That rings a bell. Um, there's it's surprising how many brands decided it was a good idea to be involved with the film <laughs> because the, the advertising slogans are on the lines of Volvo. They're boxy, but they're good. I remember that. I remember that. How do I how do I remember that so well when I don't think I've ever seen it? Uh, it's, hmm. it's something that sticks in the brain. I I have seen it, and I thought it was quite charming. Um, but yes, after Blame It on the Bellboy, it's a, a, the a very occasional cameo role, some TV work, a couple of voice roles, and then by the end of the nineties, he's pretty much retired from acting as um, the um, neurological illness that killed him started to become too serious for him to work any further. Very sad. Mm. His last words are actually on record. And um, they're rather wonderful. I can hear the music all around me. Goodness. Those are his last words. A lovely way to go. Mm. I'll file that away. Well, back in Venice... Um, Morris is watching late night uh, pervy Italian television which um, I think since then has become a little more sophisticated because when I was in Venice the only thing I could find on television that was even remotely interesting was a dubbed version of the Sandra Bullock film The Proposal Right. everything else seemed to be late night news they, they don't show anything particularly pervy do they I guess because of the uh, the rating they were going for I mean, we all knew back in this era, thanks to Clive James or Chris Tarrant or whoever it was, just how pervy Italian television was, didn't we? We all knew that, just instinctively. Yes, yes all those crazy Europeans. <laughs> well, Mervyn sees it in his hotel room as well, but he, um, he decides yes. that's, that's not for him. No, because he's that classic British comedy archetype of the 
of the very uptight Englishman. The Norman wisdom. <sighs> uh, so he goes to sleep while Mike just stares in silence at the ceiling, clearly having a bit of a, a think about his job. And while... Oh, let's check Penelope Wilson's character name. Patricia Fulford. She's always playing characters called Patricia. <laughs> uh, she's sitting up in bed reading a Mickey Spillane novel. Ah, I, I didn't see that. That's interesting. It's a, it's, a, it's a running joke that becomes important towards the end of the story. That Indeed. She, that she's this quite some shy, mousy librarian type who really loves hard-boiled crime stories. Hmm. Uh, whilst Mr. Scarper is asleep being watched by his guards, who are also asleep. The following morning, um, Caroline uh, is looking over the balcony of the villa and she sees a speedboat going by in size. So we know what her motivation is. And there's there's a montage of everyone leaving the hotel. Um, Through the revolving doors. Through the revolving doors, yes. Uh, Melvin struggles with the map. Um, and yes, trying to use a map to find your way around Venice is an absolute nightmare. I, I've been there once and I was there for four hours. It was a day trip during our honeymoon to uh, to Italy. And um, yeah, I'm astonished. I can get lost anywhere. I'm astonished we <laughs> didn't get stranded there. Um, I do remember a sort of frantic race, uh, race back to try and get our last train towards the end of that brief four-hour sojourn. I mean, your best bet to get to the train station is to keep walking in any direction and then just walk around the edge of the of the main island. Yep, makes sense. Until you eventually get to the railway station. <laughs> um, Morris uh, heads to the villa where he sees Caroline, who he thinks is his date, and mutters to himself, oh, jackpot. <laughs> whilst Patricia is just hanging out, relaxing at a cafe, while um, uh, Mike, is, Mike takes her... Mike takes her photo? I've written... Oh, no, he's, no he's, he's checking her against his photo. Just to confirm who it is. And he's up... Uh, is he up the church bell tower at this point? Uh, not quite yet, I don't think. Okay, sorry. But, um, As you were. There is immediately between... Caroline and Morris, the, the misunderstanding of why he's there. And she asks him if he if he would prefer to start inside. I, yeah. I made a note here that that would probably be... That, I don't know, I, I think Patsy Kensit probably could have played it a bit bigger. So, I I can see why you know, she's a very serious actress, so I can see why she decided to search for the truth in these moments. But um, it's one of those areas where he's going for it with the script. Yes, there's an, there's an imbalance in terms of screen presence. That Richard Griffiths is playing it quite big and yes. broad. And yes. she's playing it a bit more straight and serious. Now, I make no judgments as to the general quality of their acting or these decisions. But for this film, I personally think Richard Griffiths knows what's required of him and how to play it. Oh, it's not... Ludicrous, it's not by no means over the top, but I think he is ringing what all the fun required out of these moments. Whereas because Patsy's playing it truthfully, 
it does start to get a bit <laughs> icky later on because but this is just personal preference for for these very subtle tonal shifts in comedy which i think are far more you know a slight few degree, turn a few degrees one way or the other in comedy can have a momentous effect mm. on how how situations go down as it were but yes Melvin arrives at Mr. Scarper's house and immediately has a gun put to his head while Mike takes aim at Patricia but realises that he can't do it. Um, he psychs himself up and fires just as the clocks, the, the bell strikes behind him. Um, but he misses and it's revealed that he's actually shot at a parrot. Yes. And it, it feels like it's like a last vestige of maybe this might have at some point been um, submitted to Handmaid and knowing their, <laughs> knowing their Python heritage wrote a dead yes. parrot into the script. Oh, blimey, I hadn't thought of that. Hmm. <laughs> Melvin is but hit, being... hit men killing animals by mistake is a, tr- is a well-worn trope here, which has, of course, uh, been recently re-energised with Fish Called Wanda. Yes, very much and so. It's not the last time I'll be reminded of that. Um, it's funny actually, A Fish Called Wonder didn't occur to me at all when I was watching the film, but just thinking about it now, yes, this is a fair amount to A Fish Called Wonder. <laughs> Maybe that's what the Hollywood executives thought. A Fish Called Wonder had been a huge success commercially and had been was nominated for Oscars. That could be it. Maybe they thought, oh yeah, British comedy swapping, actors. Swapping Dudley Moore for John Cleese. John Cleese. Uh, Dudley Moore, Hollywood's number one sex thimble. <laughs> as, as he liked to think of, as he liked to call himself um, yep um, a, a, Brian... a, a big Hollywood star like um, Andreas Katsoulis or Brian Brown Brian Brown for Brian Brown for Kevin Klein for Kevin Klein yep that's where I was going with that Andreas Katsoulis for John, for Tom Georgeson <laughs> Richard Griffiths for Michael Palin well hmm. okay we'll come back to that because um, I, I think Richard Griffiths uh, sorry Michael Palin is subbed for by uh, Dudley Moore as well. In uh, so it's not a com- it's not a straight overlap. No, in some no. scenes we'll be coming to later on. Um, worth a thought. But he's being interrogated because um, Scarpa thinks he's the hitman. Um, oh, well, they're already. <laughs> there's there's a lot of very short scenes as it sort of jumps between different scenarios. Um, there's an awkward moment as the plane goes over the. Uh, the villa and Caroline asks whether do you like what you see or do you want to get down to the nitty gritty right away? Yeah, which it's, puts, which I puts mean, him on the back foot a bit because he doesn't he's not used to women being that forward with him. I don't love all these scenes and they don't entirely come off with the lightness of touch which I think they should. But he's uh, I admire the skill with which he manages to string together enough double entendres to keep this going without it without the whole edifice collapsing. This it, misunderstanding. It's, it, it's extended far beyond the point at which most comedy writers would try and keep it up. Um, Mike makes another attempt to shoot Patricia as they're on gondolas, but he loses his nerve again. Um, Morris, Morris suggests, oh, it's a bit early in the day for me. We've only just met. Should we have a meal first? And um, Mr. Scarpa doesn't believe Melvin's story about um, being there to buy a house. You're sort of glossing over these astonishing scenes of torture. Now, am I? I'm, you know, I'm we not. We haven't quite got to the torture yet. Have we not got to the torture? Oh, no. sorry. Oh, good. It's just a tr- tr- traditional, uh, traditional <laughs> interrogation. 
we get, right. we, we get onto the um, the other bits later, very literally, in fact. Um, <laughs> Mike finally builds up his nerve to uh, shoot Patricia in a, a little park area, but when he takes a second look, she's gone, and it turns out that she's actually behind him. Yep, that's <laughs> and, a nice nice reverse. And I like it. because she thinks that he's been sent there as part of the meditate, she introduces herself to him to make things easier. <laughs> and he's absolutely appalled. And also he shoots a pigeon by accident. Yeah. Um, he drags her into an empty building uh, where they talk whilst Caroline mentions that most clients don't even bother taking her out to dinner, which even Morris thinks is a bit beyond the pale. And at the end of dinner, there's a nice little moment where... Um, uh, the waiter gives Morris's change on a, a side plate, as is normal in Italy. Um, and he and that's the idea is that that's the tip that you leave behind. But um, he just he just says, "Ah, oh, thanks," and he tips the plate into his pocket. <laughs> and it's also mentioned that he's a bank manager, and that too yes. becomes important. It's all all this information is being fired at you fairly quickly. But it's all being seeded for the way that the plot twists later on. It's, I, I think it's a very efficient script. That I mean, I don't think it's something that we've mentioned yet. This is an incredibly short film. It is. It is. It is, I think, one hour, 18 minutes, including credits. Do you think, going in, it, it, uh, anybody would have involved would have known it was going to be that short? And um, why... Second question, do you think that would have been seen as a problem when it became apparent that it was that short? Would you think in this sort of situation they would normally have then asked for some additional photography, write some extra gags and find another ten minutes from somewhere? I think it probably read longer because there is a lot of dialogue and it's delivered very quickly. So I think on the page it would have it would have run a lot longer. Um, I think that when the first sort of... Uh, Herman approved cut came through and it wound up being you know barely 80 minutes uh, on film there might have been some concern this, that this is a bit short this is probably not long enough to release and be taken seriously but where could you add anything mm. without it feeling like padding there's there's no slack moments that, or, or or moments where you could add in something and it wouldn't disrupt the the fast pace. If anything, as you say, there's a couple of moments near the beginning that you could even remove and tighten the film up even further. Um, but it would then be just a, a flat-out sprint for it's interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> an hour and 15 minutes. So regardless of you know your own personal taste, I think one of its strengths is that it just gets on with the job. Its strength, its biggest strength, is the plotting. Anything you could add, you could change, would dilute that. Sorry, anything you could add would dilute that. For me, so I don't think, don't think there's anything you can do once you filmed it. For me, it, it would have been at script stage. And to return to my theme, I think there's a better version of this. I'm torn. I'm torn between making the characters slightly more three dimensional, so you could use that extra time you know the another 10 minutes to maybe make us care about them a bit more or may or but then would that would that ruin it depends this 
it this featherweight confection. Uh, it depends entirely on the pacing. If you're able to incorporate that sort of expanded character material with a degree of on-screen action and work that into the plot and have that develop and merge naturally with the rest of the story, then, yeah, that's worth doing. But the, but the, the story is so heightened and it's so just beyond reality. The characters are so just beyond yep. believability or at the limit of believability. Making them too believable and real is perhaps undermining mm. what Herman wants to do, the kind of story that Herman wants to tell. I can I I can't see that working. I mean most um most comedies, most film comedies only tend to turn farcical and plotty and and the pace speeds up towards the end in the third act for example, don't they? Yeah. So you would you would put this extra character, this hypothetical extra character stuff at the beginning, probably mostly in the first act, maybe spread throughout the first two. But then you've got a different film. This is very a very disciplined farce, which kicks off almost immediately, doesn't it? Yeah. And anything you put in before the farce starts would unbalance it somehow. So, I mean, you could say I can't have think of a, f- a scene of Melvin being chewed out by Mr. Marshall in London, where we see Mr. Marshall in person, but you wouldn't necessarily need that because I think Marshall works much better as just this disembodied voice over the phone. Or the, the twist later on, where we discover that Morris is not, as he claims, a widower. He's actually married, and his wife comes out to see him, and suddenly Alison Steadman's in the movie. Yeah. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm undecided about this. I'm not a filmmaker, so I don't know whether adding, just beefing up the dialogue throughout, you know, what are we talking about? Another 10 minutes on 80 minutes is less than 10% each scene running 10% longer except the action scenes and then the scenes where the editing is very tight to get the plot working I think in the sections that are already slower I think expanding it by 10% I don't think it would ruin it so I think that I'm going to come down the side that possibly there is a better version of this where there's just the extra 10% of dialogue which enables us the characters to be it's uh, it's in my head (laughs) <laughs> it's funny dialogue. It's not just it's not just laboriously character building dialogue. It, it achieves both those aims at, at the same time. Um, yeah. So as uh, as I mentioned, Morris says that he's actually he, he's widowed, and during that scene, the the film's theme song is playing in the background in the restaurant where they're eating. Um, you can just hear it in the background. Even the anecdote he tells about what happened to her is sort of slightly unpleasant. It's, it's interesting that it, of all the things he could have picked, it, it's a strange guy rope tent peg through the head uh, related accident. Ah, that explains my note, because I thought it said tent peg in drain. But no, it's actually tent peg in brain. Yes. <laughs> no wonder I couldn't read that properly. It's Again, it's just unrealistic enough to think, I know. no, that must be wrong. It's tricky, isn't it? Um, Melvin calls up Mr. Marshall to prove that he knows him and that his story is real. And uh, Scarper is confused as to why Melvin should accept the level of abuse he gets over the phone. Even the Mafia Don is becoming sympathetic to this poor downtrodden man <laughs> whom he is about to torture. Hmm. Like, well, yeah, I mean, I'm going to apply electrodes to his balls, but what he's doing, oh, that's terrible. 
Yes, I quite like that idea on paper, but uh, um, only Patricia just try- came off. Patricia tries to get Mike to play something on his violin, and he responds by taking his gun out of the of the case and pointing it in her, into her face. Whilst, yeah, as I say, Scarpa tortures um, Melvin with uh, electrodes, and they eventually realise that there has been a mistake. At the same I mean, moment, think... at the same moment that Patricia and Mike realise there's been a mis- there's been a mix up, and that uh, he's not actually from Metadata at all, he is a professional killer. Yeah. Now, what do you think about this torture? Did you did it not bother you? Did you because do you, because you are what somehow managing to watch the whole film in the, with the same heightened rea- sense of reality? You're not genuinely worried for Dudley, lovely cuddly Dudley, because it's it's a bit different. I'm thinking. I'm getting flashbacks to Fish Called Wanda, Marco Padding with chips up his nose. I'm thinking that that's how you do it when you have... You make it com- absurd. Yeah. Well, maybe that's not... Maybe you don't have to. Maybe that's just John Cleese's way of doing it. That's... But, um, that's... that's, that's I, mean, absolute... I, I agree that it's probably uh, electrodes <laughs> on the balls is probably in middle, it's, um, the middle ground. He's not cutting his fingers off one by one, for example, is he? Um, so I suppose it could be worse. It's... Even earlier on, even earlier on, when he was stroking his face with a fork and sticking <laughs> sticking the fork in his cheek, I was thinking, would that be funny if it was a spoon? You see, comedy is made up of all these micro decisions to, on tone, one after another, that you have to get right, and these are just little tweaks. You see, for me, I'm thinking, oh God, that's horrible. Why would you? <laughs> You can't electrocute Dudley Moore. Is that funny? And I'm not supposed to be thinking that. So I don't know if the problem is with me. I haven't canvassed a sample of, of um, the people for this, you see. So it could just be me. Although, you know, the the low ratings that this film generally gets on the, on the internet make me think I'm not alone. Well, I think that um, it need, uh, he needs to be tortured in some way because they have to try and get him to tell the truth. And it needs to be something that isn't going to leave too much of a mark. Right, but it has okay. To be, but it has to be something that's horrible enough to be frightening for, for Melvin. So the prospect of having his balls uh, connected to the mains. Um, and they don't, go, they don't quite go through with it, I don't think. No, no not, the, not the testicular torture. No. Like... So it's, it just needs to be the threat of that. It's not going to be like, you know, casino where they put someone's head in advice and pop his eyes out no yeah i mean some people find that funny so well, it is, it is all, a, a it lot is a of it is funny down. scene <laughs> i mean it's not it's not quite as funny as later on in casino where um joe pesci is still delivering voiceover narration right up to the moment where someone else beats him over the head with a baseball bat and his narration goes ow <laughs> well i do keep thinking about this film's antecedents, um, wants to have that sort of dark edge of, say, some of the classic Ealing comedies, which Cleese himself was riffing on in Fish Called Wanda. And they, I just think they have a slightly narrower canvas of violence. Well, it's. I <laughs> wish to paint their laughs. I think that's to do with what was acceptable at the time. I mean, the level of violence you could have in comedy in, say, the early 50s, I think it wasn't going to be much beyond what you could do in a Laurel and Hardy film. Hmm. 
it either had to be very mild or completely absurd and the uh, the two extremes i think have have got close with this film so it can be, it can be stronger and it doesn't have to be as ridiculous interesting i'm enjoying hearing another point of view good Mel, as they uh, as they leave the house melvin and scarpa pass a body being pulled from the canal um which Mike also sees and is disgusted by. Whilst coming the other way, <laughs> Caroline and Morris pass in a gondola without realising there's even the police there. And they almost fall out of the gondola when he leans over to kiss her. <laughs> uh, Dudley Moore, however, is able to get away when he pushes one of the henchmen into the canal and makes a run for it. Pa- passing straight by Caroline and Morris as they're now at cross-purposes where um, she wants the cash out of him, but he thinks that that's for sex. So they finally come out and say, oh, you'll, only, you'll only pay me if I have sex with you. But then she sees the speedboat go by again. <laughs> because Caroline's motivation throughout the entire film is that she wants a speedboat. It's interesting, isn't it? That's, uh, that's, that's good. It's better than her being generically after money. The fact that it's a specific object she's fixated on, a speedboat rather than anything else, is is theoretically quite amusing. Um, I don't think she always sells it as well as she could. I think it it's it needs to sidestep the more obviously sexist stereotypes. Um, and later on, when they they do actually have sex, it's is is this is this coercive? Well, no, because she really wants the money. And she's constantly reminding herself of the speedboat as they're having sex. I thought this is, this is borderline creepy, but I think it's on the okay side of the border. How how did you feel about it? You want to skip ahead to that scene? Well, just just now, just, just <laughs> I, because we're, we're I thought it was that. even. I th- I've got a note that's even more disturbing than the torture. But I think that's the scene that people most remember. It's the scene I remember reviews at the time picking up on. Um, <laughs> um, I think possibly the way it's shot is a bit more. I think we see. I don't know. She's doing it because she wants his money. And yeah. So you're, you're talking the, about it from a sexual politics point of view. Is yes. And, uh, uh, the, could the, you do the, this now? Should you have done it then? What does it look like with twenty twenty eyes? With twenty twenty vision? Um, I mean, I, mm. it's it's not great. And you couldn't do it this way now. But I think if you thought about it, you could come up with a variation that was not going to get you into trouble. I think you'd probably have to stop short of them actually having sex. I think I think I would have stopped short of it actually happening purely because I think... Do you know what? Sex in comedy is a funny thing. I don't think it really belongs there. And it certainly doesn't belong in English comedy farcical comedy bedroom farces people never people have always been thwarted from having sex in Britain you know in this traditional genre and the fact that they, they go through with it seems to me to be only there because he thinks it'll get extra laughs from punishing avaricious Patsy Kensit I can't see any other reason why it actually gets that far yeah that's a very good point in a character uh, sense as well it's the thing that he wants is sex, and therefore it's the thing that he should should never be allowed to have. Exactly. 
And so remove yeah, I mean, if it wasn't sex and this wasn't a, a British farcical comedy, then he does need to then if it was something else he was after, like money, from a plot point of view, he should be allowed to achieve his goal before he has it taken away from him because he does become rather smug afterwards. He's at his height, isn't he, as a character when he she says, You mean I'm just uh I'm not going to let you screw me for nothing. And he says, you just did, sweetheart. Yeah. He seems slightly out of character at that point. And it's, it's, being, it's being written up to set him up for his inevitable fall so that we will enjoy his fall when it comes. But he's, I feel like it's, um, it's a contrivance with these characters. It's the only point at which it rings false to me. It's like, it, for him to be that smug about it, and Adam that sneery, would imply that he'd gone there intending to be duplicitous but he went there as seedy as it as his intentions were <laughs> to have um, consensual sex with somebody behind <laughs> behind his wife's back so why does he need to be that pleased with himself hmm. so i think this is just the plot mechanics we're watching rather than two people just for those those few scenes and then again then it gets back to normal again i mean it You'd have to completely change the rest of the film. Um, Patsy Kensit flipping, turn the tables on him, wouldn't work if if we hadn't gone that far. But if they had got close to it but not had sex, then that would still be something that she would be able to hang over him. This is true. Later on. This is true. It's it's finding where the... Where, at which point does it go from being... Appropriate to inappropriate, really. I mean, this is obvi- this yep. obviously a very a very big question. I'm more worried. About, I'm afraid. I'm more worried about whether it works. It's appropriate tonally for what the film's trying to achieve than I am about whether it's appropriate uh, politically. But I don't. But this is this is if we want if we want to be serious about this from a feminist point of view. This is clearly two people making a decision to go through with this. Nobody's forcing either of them to do anything. As you say, it's skirting with the stereotype of the gold-digging woman who mm. will sell herself for money. Uh, but it's not where the film starts out. It's just a decision she makes in the moment. And be, <laughs> the, the absurd addition of the speedboat is the one thing that she's she yeah. visualising the, the the through all of this, yeah. I, think, I think, helps. Mm. But there you go. She sees it as an opportunity to extract the money from him that she wants to achieve her ambition. And uh, you It's can't... not like this is the only film, the only story ever told that has used such a device. No, and you and you can't for really better con- or for worse. You can't really condemn a motivation like that without condemning sex workers in general, which we're not going to do, obviously. <laughs> um because we're modern people and not a pair of bastards. So it's yeah, it's a tricky and- I normally try moment. to imagine. I normally try to just flip the um, the sexes and see if how it would feel, whether it would make any sense at all, and how I would feel about it if the if the roles were reversed. But um, I've been thinking about that, and I'm not sure it really gets us very far if you reverse it. I, I don't. Th- yeah, I don't think there's sufficient. They are par- stock parity they are... for it to for it to work in the same way with with the with the the genders reversed. No. The, dyna- the dynamic is, is completely different. Yeah. It's an interesting thought. But I'm not going to rush off and write that version. <laughs> well, as uh, Melvin is 
being chased around the back alleys of Venice, uh, uh, there's there's a moment that looks like it just happened in the take of I think it's Jim Carter as he's running around a corner and his coat flaps behind him. A dog grabs onto the tail of his coat. I missed that. I just like. He uh, uh, Melvin hides by a kiosk and manages finally to make it back to the hotel after a, after the chase, passing uh, Caroline and um, uh, Morris as they're going up, and um, Melvin frantically checks out and says, "Oh, don't worry, I won't, I won't be coming back here in a hurry." Turns around and Scarper is at the door waiting for him. Yes, and he quite turns around, goes back to the front desk, and says, I- "I'd like to check in again, please." <laughs> At which point, not only do uh, Patricia and Mike arrive back at the hotel, but another character arrives at the front desk, um, just as uh, uh, Caroline and Morris are having sex upstairs, and the woman introduces herself as Morris's wife. And this is Rosemary, played by Alison Steadman. It is. And now it's um, yes, it's possibly any moment where it feels like we're heading into much more traditional um, Brian Bricks territory, doesn't it? Yeah, <laughs> we're getting a lot of running in and out of different hotel rooms, but it doesn't quite get that direction. And there's no vicar either. No, that's true. So the bellboy takes her up to Morris's room, knocks on the door, opens it, and inside is Dudley Moore being tortured. <laughs> <laughs> the bellboy. The bellboy also practices saying the names in the lift. Horton, Horton. It's again. It's. I see what you mean. There is a variation of tones. There's the bellboy who is a cartoon character. There is the, at the other end of the scale. There's the, the character, the, the the woman who's after money, who is a character who can, go in various directions depending on how the material's treated. And there's also, at the far end, there's the torture. There's. That each each separate storyline seems to have its own comic tone without it fully meshing completely. I mean, and dress uh, Scarpa barely seems to know he's in a comedy. He gets like a couple of funny lines out of the eighty minutes, and most of the time he's genuinely terrifying. So, well, that ma- which, which makes is an interesting the, choice. It makes the threat much more real. Yeah. Um. I think having him as a, a, a serious, stern character and then Dudley Moore carrying the, the comic weight in those scenes, I think that works as a, as a balance. I, I will take your point. I'm, I'm just going to keep saying that I don't know, I don't know if it's necessary. I'll think of the Lady Killers. Would that have been funnier if, if Alec Guinness had played his part completely and utterly straight all the way through, rather than... <laughs> well... Well, rather than the delightful likely absurd way that he did it's it's a different element there but i think because he's the lead character mm. and there are three or four other major characters you would rank above andreas katsoulis in terms of being senior characters within the, the context of the film um there aren't any characters in the lady killers who i think are funny characters they all think they're serious um and it's in in, I, in, in in this. That's all the characters think they're serious, but only some of the, only a couple of them actually are being serious all the way through and have no comic element to deal with. And I think it's it's again it's a difference of of tone. Yeah, yeah. I just want to make it clear again that I've got no problem with the plot at all. It's entirely anything I would change you know, with fiddling with me 
dials on the fader of changing pitching the tone up or down a bit at any given moment but it's really just tweaking but so yes the character the mafia characters in the plot are used perfectly so um uh caroline agrees a price of 120,000 pounds i know 100,000 pounds for uh for the house yeah, there's a missed there's a missed opportunity there i thought she should have upped it again that would just been an extra little beat if it said, you know, 100,000, wasn't it? <laughs> and she'd squeeze another 20 out. But um, they finally realised the, the misunderstanding, as as you say. She says that she screwed him for nothing. Whereupon there's a knock at the door. <laughs> and, ah, oh, I have a big surprise for you. And it's Rosemary, at which point, perfectly timed, Alfio the hitman walks past and takes a photograph of this Polaroid just as he's passing so that he can get a picture of his next victim. Rosemary explains that um, she heard from the cashier in Morris's bank that he was coming to Venice and was wondering why he, the Lord Mayor, was going there when he said he was going to a business conference in Buxton, uh, at which point she notices that there is a woman's handbag and Caroline comes out of the bathroom and says, oh... Oh, Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Horton, how nice to meet you. Oh, your husband's here to buy a villa. He's always he's very much wanted to get his hands on my properties. And he's, she's able to pass the whole thing off as him having come to actually buy the villa, but doing it all in secret. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Sorry, I was just suddenly imagining this scene played uh, with uh, Barbara Windsor instead of Patsy Kensett. But um, no. It... Could you imagine this recast with the carry-on actors? <laughs> I'm still stumped over whether some of them need to be straighter performers than others. And I think she's she's a straighter character, isn't she? She's not funny in herself. She's just there to be, for the first half, a victim of the mechanics of the plot and for the second half to develop some agency. But she's just there as a plot device. She's not really funny in her own right. But often a failing comedies that the female characters aren't actually allowed to be funny. But it's not to be fair to this film. That isn't a problem here, is it? Because Penelope Wilton's character is very, <laughs> is very distinctive yeah. and very funny. Um, Patricia realises that Mike is in fact a hitman. Oh, oh just like the jackal! <laughs> and um, the Mafia realise that either uh, they kill... Uh, Morris themselves, who they think is the real killer, or they get Melvin to do it for them so that he will cover their tracks for them. In order to buy the villa, uh, Morris goes down to the lobby and arranges a wire transfer of cash from the UK. Patricia and Mike overhear this and thinks that this is the fee that he's arranging and that he has snaffled Mike's hitman job from underneath him. Now this this plot development I rather like. I I had been wondering all through the despite having seen it before. I've been wondering all through the first half how these stories were eventually going to meet and intersect when they did, and I couldn't imagine it. So I will give them credit for that. He's um he's kept me guessing, and then they do start to intersect in ways that I don't think most people would have predicted, and this is one of them. Benedict Wilson think that Richard Griffiths has um, become an opportunistic hitman. <laughs> And and stolen her new, her new lover's bounty. Mm. And uh, Scarpa 
overhears this as well and decides that since Melvin uh, isn't going to be capable of using a gun to shoot his target, they'll use a bomb. Mm. And um, also, uh, Patricia and Mike break into Morris's room, but I can't remember if they actually find anything. But it shows that she has got some criminal nouse of her own because she uses a hairpin to break in. Mm. <laughs> but not before we get to, to retrieve the hairpin. Her long flowing locks are unleashed. Oh yes, she lets and, her hair down. And Mike looks at her in a completely di- but 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 <laughs> but Henry Wilson, you're beautiful. The relationship between the two of them, I think, is it's really nicely written. They've they've got really good chemistry, which you wouldn't really expect between Penelope Wilton and Brian Brown. It is. I think it's, if you could, if you're going to take one of these strands and try and make a whole film out of it, that would be the one. I think. It's like, um, yeah, <laughs> Shirley Valentine meets Leon. Yeah, it's really charming, and Brian Brown handles it really well. He can do he can do all that the tough, menacing hitman stuff, all with the, the black polar neck and everything. But with all the romantic scenes, he gets all shy and bashful, and it it it. It actually does feel like a, a more three-dimensional character that he has these opposing sides to his personality. I didn't mention it at the time, but you said uh, when he's about to make his second attempt on, on her life, when they're on the, the, the passing gondolas, you said he the moment passes and he misses it. But what actually happens is that she smiles, she catches his eye, smiles at him, and he's completely... Um, Banjaxed. Yeah, by her, <laughs> her charm, her Penelope Wilson charm. And his face lights up just uh, just as a result of her smile, and then and then there's a sort of mild double take when he realizes. Oh wait, I was I was supposed to shoot her. Yeah. Scarpa hands Melvin the bomb, and says, "Ah, oh, sleep well." And they also, I think it's either then or I think probably later, it takes the Polaroid, which becomes one of the key images of the film. Is Dudley Moore holding a bomb with a big smile on his face, <laughs> and. Yeah, Mike apologises to Patricia for everything that um, he's put her through. And she says, oh, that's all right. It's been the best day of my life. Mm. And it's, oh, pity is I have no one to tell. You know, I've, I've been missing. I'm kidnapped and no one knows I'm gone. So she doesn't have any anyone close back home. And then there's a nice contrast with um, Morris and Rosemary going to bed, having previously on his own at late at night watched... Uh, perv TV um, he's watching it again while she's in the bathroom and a split second before she sees the screen he flips it over to a nature documentary with baby hippos he does Mike talks about how lonely his life is that um, he's always had to stay on his own And the thing that he's always really dreamed of is wanting to open a flower shop that was a good one yep I like that line it's, it's. I think it's now become a bit of a cliche that oh yeah, what what the big tough guy always wants to do. He just wants to be a florist, like police, <laughs> like police academy. Yeah, I think it was quite a yeah a well worn gag even back in the day. But it was normally a big sort of Bernard Breslau type ca- lug character that would yeah. get to say that. Whereas here, it's it's a more believable, hmm. con- realistic tough guy, and again, just played so straight and so sincere you think oh yeah okay and rather sweetly they're they're sleeping in the same room but they have separate single beds 
Yep, quite a nice little reveal. The starts off a cutting between them as if they're next to each other, doesn't it? And so, for a first-time director, he's got some good ideas. Hmm. Well, having started out in animation with right. a lot of visual storytelling, it's, hmm. it sort of fits in quite neatly. And uh, Mervyn sleeps in the same bed as the henchman as well. <laughs> uh, squashed between the two of them. Yep. Uh, the following morning, um, everyone is keeping an eye on Morris. And uh, Mike says to Patricia that they're waiting, they have to wait for the perfect moment. It's again a recurring line because of the song. And as he leaves, everyone follows. Scarpa gets hold of a replacement briefcase to switch out for the money um, so that to replace with a bomb. But they'll have to switch the tags on the case because the cases are put behind the uh, reception counter. So they they get switched, and as a distraction, while the switch is going on, uh, Jim Carter's character starts a fire at the same moment that Mike says that he's he's never really had a, a proper relationship, nothing that has really set the world on fire. As so, the, There are lots of little moments like this that are all that, um, a little corny, but, that, but work somehow, because I think the charm of the, some of the performances carry them through. It's I did. A, I saw, I smi- a lot of moments where I smile rather than laughing out loud, or maybe a, even a chuckle, a little chucklet. There's a warmth, I think. The, the the characters who are written as being likable are genuinely likable. Dudley Moore's character is just this rather you know, downtrodden, poor, <laughs> poor sap who you want something nice to happen to. And I think, despite implying earlier that we don't know much about him, he's a bit of a sort of hole that Dudley that is entirely filled with what we the charm that Dudley Moore brings that we, yeah, because we know who he is. Um, I think perhaps if we did know him too well, or if he, <laughs> before every, his whole world starts to fall apart, maybe it wouldn't have the, um, we wouldn't be rooting for him quite so much. It's the relentlessness <laughs> of his misfortune in this. Yeah, that he, goes, he goes from one horrible boss to another. As the fire goes up, the bellboy steps forward and, and tries to put it out, and he delivers warnings in various languages including English and American and it's dialogue that that is I think a bit lost in the mix it says English please stay away from the fire American get the fuck out of here does he say that how did I miss yeah, that it's the, oh, the, no. what, the one f-bomb in the film <laughs> well yes famously the Americans swear much more than the English um, but um, Carter's character switches the the tabs on the cases, and casually just pours a glass of water into the burning bin. Um, Richard Griffiths, um, Morris collects the case, and Melvin collects his case as well. And says, ah, uh, Mr. Orton, are you coming back? Says, oh yes, I'm coming back. Looks at Scopper. Aren't I? <laughs> so they all head off by boat uh, to the Lido, the Lido rather, and just as they get to the other side, uh, Scarpa gives um, Melvin the order to set off the bomb, but he doesn't want to because um, yeah, Rosemary's, Rose, Rosemary's there, and, and as far as he's aware, she's completely innocent. So as, while she's looking around the villa, very impressed, uh, Morris sits on the case on the swing, and this is their opportunity. This is the perfect moment. But when um, Melvin presses the button to set the bomb off, nothing happens. 
and they assume that he's out of range, so they, <laughs> they throw him in a dinghy and get him to paddle towards the shore so that he'll be close enough to set it off. And this is nice because um, that all makes perfect sense, so we're not thinking anything of it. It's setting us up for the, the denouement, the resolution of this seemingly intractable problem, isn't it? But we're not thinking about that. We're worried that the closer Dudley gets to this rapidly expanding group of people that we quite like. Not at this point. <laughs> I don't suppose we're that bothered if Richard Griffiths goes up in flames. But there is a definite sense of peril and urgency increasing here. Yeah. Just as uh, Mike and Patricia arrive, he's brought a gun with him, but he assures her that it's just for show and isn't loaded. And um, as Dudley Moore is frantically rowing towards the shore, a brawl breaks out between the various characters outside the house, all of them over the money, um, and uh, they finally realise that they haven't turned the bomb on. Or is it? I'm not sure... There's a, yeah, there's a bit of confusion They, they wonder there. if perhaps they haven't. They wonder but... if they haven't turned the bomb on, and, they, and the other henchman says, yeah, I did it when I switched the tags. So that means that they both switched the tags, so that the you bomb... You switched is the actually... tags, I, also, I switched the tags. Now, so... I like that. I like that. I think this is a clever resolution, and more to the point, it's timed perfectly. When you've got a, a clever reveal like that, I think the way you, the point at which you <laughs> give it to the audience and the way in which you tell them is absolutely crucial. And um, I think that because I've seen it done badly so often, Jeremy. And I, <laughs> <laughs> I like this because it's just at the last moment. It's, it's, you told it quite snappily and then, well, almost literally, they, bang. They they start, it they, pays start off. they start shooting at Melvin to stop him from pressing the button. <laughs> um, and their last despairing tries to just throw the, their case over the side, but they don't do it quick enough. Melvin presses the button while he happens to be pointing the remote at them, and it goes off, it blows up the boat, and it kills all three of them. At which point everyone on the shore freezes, because they have no idea that that's going on. Patricia grabs the gun and holds the others at gunpoint. <laughs> and when Caroline says oh the money was just to pay for the villa there's a look of disgust from Mike who is I think, appalled by everyone else I think <laughs> I don't think, I've, think I might have left something out there um, I think I've left something out here what? oh yes they do yes they buy the they agree to buy the villa because they everyone realises what what everyone's really after that Morris isn't really a hitman as Patricia and Mike thought because the thing that's in their briefcase is well papers and Morris has got the money which he thought he had but um, Patricia and Mike are only convinced that he's not a hitman because Patsy Kensit tells yes because Caroline says that it's it (laughs) Uh, uh, corroborates their story. Yeah. So the sale of the villa goes through. At which point, Patricia mentions meditate, and I think that's the point where um, Rosemary realizes that Morris has been cheating on her. I think. 
My my notes get a bit garbled at this point. I'm not sure about that. Possibly. It's trying to tie up the misunderstandings. And we're now on, of course, on our second round of misunderstandings because that that hit the triangle of interactions has rotated another 120 degrees with for this for the final act but now we've that's finished and he, he, they clear up the misunderstandings as quickly as possible because it would be laborious to have to go on with that any longer than is necessary yeah um the melvin arrives back at the hotel soaking wet um and there's a message from mr marshall Mike and Patricia get back and are frantically packing to leave because, as Mike says, he has very mean bosses and you don't want to cross them. Um, and he's when there's a knock at the door, he's braced for someone to come and get him. But it turns out it's the bellboy carrying a message from his bosses who are delighted with his work in getting rid of Mr. Scarper and his two henchmen. So, um, yes, well done. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Mysterious Man. Here is your bonus. Now, at this point, no, hang on, you carry on. It's not at this point, it's after the next scene. <laughs> um, Melvin returns the call from uh, Mr. Marshall and says, yes, yes, I've, uh, yes, I've arranged the house. They want um, uh, £350,000 and um, they want it uh, wired to uh, this address in the Bahamas. And oh, the address, yes, it's, it's this address and it's the address of Scarpa's house. Now, this is all very good. Well, I'll tell you why I like this. At this point, all of our deserving lead characters have got not... Well, they've got the just desserts. They've not necessarily got what they wanted. They've either got what they wanted or what they didn't know they wanted. And what I like about that is that quite often in um, Farsed Screwville comedies, that gets overlooked. I'm not saying I always want a happy ending because I'm an old softie, although that is part of it. But sometimes in the plotting, the resolution... Particularly in classic um, screwballs, often the resolution is so swift that they don't have time to make sure that all the strands we started with, all the character journeys that we started with, are tied up in quite the way they should be. It's mm. often certain characters are left to suffer at the, at the expense of others. And here, it's all quite... <laughs> it's all so nicely tied up. Going back, I think that adds to the warmth... Going back to, as you were saying, the front page earlier, I mean, that's that's mm. a story that's been remade a number of times, and in a couple of versions, the one half of the central reporting partnership is female. Yeah, yeah. And there's a romantic element to the partnership, and it's I always end up feeling sorry for the female partner's new boyfriend, who winds up being left out in the cold through no fault of their own. Yeah, yeah. They have to have I, they, they have to have their story resolved in some way. I'm quite hard line on this, and. Um... I think I've probably mentioned P.G. Woodhouse every time you've allowed me one of these. I'm going to mention him again. But his version of this sort of farcical rom-com setup always was very clear to make sure that everybody gets a resolution that is satisfying for the reader. Mm. That doesn't always mean it's satisfying for the character, but it's but it generally does. If one of if um, you know, if you might start off with one. Cu- one destined couple and two singles, and they'll 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 swap over. You won't get anyone who's left. Oh, it's nice and mathematical and geometrically arranged. And yes, that it, because it's it's an equation with no remainder. Ooh, brilliant, like it. <laughs> oh, I made a funny noise then. I enjoyed that so much. <laughs> yeah, and um, 
you have to get the maths and the structure and the legwork and the foundations done so that the audience don't have to think about that. They can just feel it. That is what I think. And it even applies to film here where they're possibly slightly less relatable characters, but we're still, we're st we still enjoy the precision with which all the pieces of this mm. elaborate clockwork mechanism settle back into place. Well, as, as uh, Melvin, is, Melvin is heading for the airport, going completely the wrong direction, incidentally, um, <laughs> Caroline is enjoying her new speedboat, which she has picked up from the showroom immediately. Yeah. <laughs> take, take, taking, she's gone straight to the showroom to take a, a one for a test drive, perhaps. I mean, it's not like you can find much, many car showrooms in Venice. Um, and... As he's uh, heading off, the uh, police are picking through the remains of the burned boat and they find the various photos in there, including a picture of Melvin, just as Melvin is passing by. And they are about to go after him when Caroline loses control of the speedboat and hits the police boat, allowing Melvin to get, make a clean getaway. While on the plane, just as... Um, it's taking off. Patricia and Mike share a glass of champagne and she asks him what his real name is. And she says, oh, it's no, it's all right. You don't have to answer now. And he says, why wait? This is the perfect moment. And it's revealed that his real name is, in fact, Charlton Black. Yeah, setting us up for a proper big gag. <laughs> The only line that could cap this film, apparently. <laughs> well, they actually, I'm doing this slightly out of sequence because it's the it's Melvin's escape ah. from the police is the very end, and he frantically paddles the um, ah, yes. the gondola to try and go faster and get away from the police. But then we have the a concluding epilogue, which I think you were going to say it's very fish called Wanda. Mm. Where the, the on-screen captions of what happens to all the various characters. Yeah, Mr. Marshall. What do, what do you think of it? I liked it. As I as said, I like finding out what happens. It's what happens over the... What happens off the edge of the frame. What's happening when the film's not going on. I really like that, and it feels like it's building up a real world. So seeing what happens to the various characters um, once they've um, gone their separate ways, I, I, I like finding that out. I find that interesting and engaging, and it makes it much more real. Are you going to read them out? Yeah. Um, Mr. Marshall came to Venice to take possession of his house and uh, he is survived by his remaining family members. I think the thing is, I've got, I'm in two minds about this because obviously Mr. Marshall, as you've pointed out, is the real villain behind this, the nastiest piece of work in the film. So, <laughs> but it's also slightly silly the way that's revealed. But then, you know, he was an off-screen character anyway. So I suppose it's just one last... And given that even in the, even in this sort of narration, his death is off screen. Yes, it's yeah. that he he goes to a mafia house, and then a short time later he was dead. <laughs> um, yeah. Caroline successfully sued the speedboat company, and later married a sumo wrestler. That's a bit silly. Um, Patricia and Mike opened their florists. Um, she has become a British shooting champion. Well, he makes regular donations to a local bird sanctuary. Morris and Rosemary divorced. 
she met the love of her life on a carib date whilst he is still looking for a partner and his phone number is included for anyone who wants to get in touch. The bellboy was fired uh, and then got a new job at the Hawaii Hilton where he also was fired after half an hour. Half an hour. And finally, Melvin did go to the Bahamas and he used Marshall's money to open a sports equipment company which specialised in testicle protectors. I must be a joyless old grouch because I didn't really, most of that, not only did I not really, did not do anything for me, I felt it undermined the slender believability of the situation. And it was all all these um, purported afterlives for the characters were so silly that it sort of slightly broke the illusion for me. So there you go. I, I, I thought the, t- uh, the tone was just... Slightly off for what I just watched. I I thought I thought it was in the same vein of believability as the rest, except perhaps for Caroline marrying the sumo wrestler. <laughs> that, I mean that that I thought was, I mean it it felt a bit off colour, and also it felt like a bit of an insult towards Richard Griffiths. <laughs> yeah, well there were lots of moments when I was thinking they were going to lay it on even thicker with um, the fat man jokes. Yeah. I thought something was going to happen with the swing. Uh, maybe, but it didn't. I thought, was, I thought when the first seat fell back in the opening scene on the plane that it was going to be him in it. And I don't know if this says more about me <laughs> Why well, I was assuming that that was the way. Because it's from what I remembered um, of the uh, extraordinary sex scene. Mm. I think I'd imagine that was threaded throughout. but But it isn't. And then over the end credits, with a beautiful, sweeping helicopter shot of the beauty that is Venice, we have the film's theme song, The Perfect Moment by the Christians, with lyrics by Mark Herman. Mm. And um, it's a, a lovely, upbeat... So it's, it's almost, if you listen to the lyrics, it's like Herman, it's um, Melvin's story of um, throwing off the shackles of your past and embracing a a, a brighter more fulfilling future so it's it fits the tone of the rest of the film rather nicely um, and and by repeating that phrase so often he's got it subliminally implanted in your subconscious so you'll go out and buy the single on Monday morning uh, it was released as a single a year after the film came out oh and the music video does not include any material from the film <laughs> not even Patsy Kensit no who's, well, do any music video for cash and the song did not chart oh dear um just looking at their chart record they had two top 10 singles their last was a charity that both of them were charity singles and neither of them from any of their albums and in fact they had pretty much already disbanded by the time blame it on the bellboy was released they were supposed to appear at a uh, the dover music festival Oh, my father was one of the organisers a few a couple of years back. The Dover Music Festival was getting quite big and and could afford a proper a proper has been band to be the headliner. But um, they were on the motorway on the way down to headline at the, at the port of Dover and they got stuck in Operation Stack. <laughs> they got stuck in the middle oh, no. of thousands of lo- of lorries, so they they missed their headlining slot. Just thought I'd throw that little detail in for you. Well, in the last uh, ten or twelve years, they they have actually uh, reunited and released a few more albums. But um, none of them appear to have charted. 
Um, the oh, best, have they... <laughs> their best of compilation in 1993 reached number 22. Now, have we finished with the questions? I'll tell you one thing. I hadn't really appreciated that Mark Herman had gone on to... He's not, it's not a name that I was familiar with, even though it turned out I'd seen several of his subsequent films. So I had no idea that he'd ever... That his career had survived this, let alone that he'd gone on to much it, it critically flourished. better appreciated work. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, his as, as we said, his follow-up was Brassed Off, which was one of the the keystones of the revival of the British cinema. Um, and he he abandons this style, doesn't he? This very formal, intricately contrived farcical structure with with stock characters and moves in a complete, a very different direction. Yes. All about real earthy gritty characters much more much more socially conscious material mm. rather than um uh, you know lightweight farce with a seasoning of crime um, <laughs> yes. and uh Brastoff was nominated for he, he personally was nominated for two baftas for the film for um best british film and best uh, original screenplay and his follow-up to that little voice nominated again for best british film and best screenplay and almost single-handedly reviving Michael Caine's career because he'd been very close to deciding to just retire. Mm. Um, it's tailed off a bit. I mean, his last film was The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas in 2008, um, which is a children's film about the Holocaust, which is a, a, a very fine line to try and tread. Uh, but he hasn't seemed to have worked on very much since then. I see he's still alive. Yes, but overall, I I like Blame It on the Bellboy quite a lot. Um, it's a, an original cinema farce. It felt much more visual and expansive than you could ever try and manage on the stage. Um, yeah, I think that the the individual sketches of the characters are interesting and engaging. Uh, it does have an extremely strong plot and a, and, a, and a good fast pace it has the kind of confidence from direction you wouldn't necessarily see from a first timer although he had experience working previously in short films and a very fine cast it's it, it's a an encore for a type of filmmaking that wasn't even by then really being made anymore and it's for the most part, I think was a high note upon which to end. Uh, although, as, as we said, there are more than a few flaws that should have been dealt with. I still think that there is enough there for it to merit strong reevaluation as at least seventy percent of a really, really good film. Yeah, I think I'm on balance. I'd agree with that. Yes, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It's not something that to be overlooked. <laughs> Comedies that that overstay their welcome are not as rare as they should be. Judd Apatow has made comedy films that are twice this film's length, <laughs> and they are interminable and don't have a single joke in them. And this is—it's not going to waste your time. It's going to take you through seven, you know, seven or eight major characters, endlessly inter- interchanged mistaken identities, crime, murder, bombs, sex, everything that makes a great story, and it does it in an hour and a quarter. And you so have... 
I think you have to admire a film that can squeeze all of that into a long lunch. <laughs> yeah. Yep, if you like this sort of thing, then I see no reason why you dislike it. But if you don't like this sort of thing, it's a comedy crime capers is not going to convert you. If you don't like comedy crime capers, though, what's wrong with you? That's a bloody good point. Yes, and if anybody out there, I sincerely hope nobody out there listening to us now would count the, themselves in that category. Back in the 50s, that was the backbone of the British film industry. Yep. So you can't blame them for trying another one just to see if they could get it to work now. So you, you would literally say this is a high note on which to end that strain of British cinema, not, uh, not a footnote. Not a footnote, no. It's too... Mm. There's, you know, you have, it's the last Dudley Moore film but it's the first Mark Herman film, so it's it's a handover. It's a crossing point in British cinema. The end of one tradition and the start of a new one, with the new British cinema just around the corner. It's an important fulcrum. And even aside from the film's quality, it is interesting in and of itself. And you thought you wouldn't have anything interesting to say about it. No, I thought we wouldn't be able to... Uh, yeah, I thought we'd be um, setting a new record for the length of these podcasts, just as the film itself does. I did one that was but, under an hour, but that film only had two characters. Ah, well. <laughs> well, thank you, for, thank you for encouraging me to watch it again. You're um, very you've welcome. Previous, you've previously uncovered things that I would never have dreamt of watching, and now you've brought me back to 19, my university days, when um, I think I probably wished I hadn't bothered to pay to see it at the cinema but watching it on a windy Saturday afternoon for, for free <laughs> it definitely fills a, fills a hole Thanks to Paul for making time for this recording His latest audio play Merry Christmas Mr Jago is part of the Paternoster Gang Heritage Volume 4, available from bigfinish.com and wherever fine audio drama is sold Cinema Limbo is now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Acast with over 80 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnose is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, he's from Barcelona. listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com.